Well, good morning, good noon hour to you, I suppose. So the third January, uh, uh, sorry, the third Sunday in January <clears throat> uh, is celebrated across North America as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. So we've chosen uh, today to give a message on how God views the beginning of life and the end of life and some medical issues associated with us during our life. This really is a consideration of ethics, and in particular of Christian ethics. So ethics is a, a system of moral principles and standards governing human interactions, or simply put, ethics is what is right and what is wrong. And uh, this is a philosophical discussion in some respects, but also a theological one in that God has things to say about ethics. Christian ethics use God's word as the standard for determining what is right and what is wrong, or what ethical principles are. Now, at the risk of uh, seeming a little old and cynical, uh, as the years have passed, I've become increasingly depressed by the lack of moral and ethical clarity in our various government decisions, both in the judicial system and in our legislatures, particularly nations such as ours that have been based upon Judeo-Christian principles. These nations were founded on and adopted principles that God laid out uh, in the Bible. They were Christian principles. But increasingly, our governments are moving away from these absolute principles and rather are using community standards as the determining factor in what is right and what is wrong. As a general rule, people consider that community standards are fine since the people get what they want. The majority rules, and even in some cases the minority rules. But the question still remains, should the majority rule? For as we all know here, it was the majority that crucified our Lord Jesus Christ. Away with him. We won't have this man to rule over us. And Pilate, willing to please the people, gave the Savior up for crucifixion. Ethics should concentrate on what is right and wrong, not on what the majority wants. Well, what is right? It's God's word, the Bible, the standard that should judge all aspects of our life, including ethics. Biblical principles are rock-solid standards that will allow individuals and families and churches and communities and even nations to live in harmony. And if you accept the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of God speaking to us, ethical issues generally are very clear. If you don't accept God's standard, then we end up with situational ethics, lacking a right or a wrong. Rather, it depends on the circumstances. Now, having said that, ethics are, ne are never terribly or completely simple. For example... I want to give you a, a, a story here, 
And let's say that a teenager is caught breaking into a pharmacy and stealing from it. That's wrong, wouldn't you say? Probably everyone here would say yes, since one of the Bible's commandments is, thou shalt not steal, Deuteronomy 5.19. Okay, but what if I tell you that this teenager, let's call him Mike, what if this teenager's father had recently passed away and now he had no male authority in his life, no family leadership that was lacking? Now, most of us would still have the same opinion. Mike still should not steal. His family circumstances don't impact ethics. As well, there are services such as Big Brother that could assist in giving Mike family guidance. All right, but what if I tell you that Mike was desperately hungry? Because not only was there no dad in the family, but his mom, Elizabeth, who is now the family breadwinner, is desperately ill with cancer. There's no other family to look after Mike, and he and Elizabeth are in danger of losing their apartment since the rent has not been paid for three months. Elizabeth can no longer work, and welfare is not covering all the expenses. Mike and his two younger sisters, and in this case, Mike was justified in breaking into the pharmacy, I ask you. I think we would still say, no, he was not. But perhaps our sympathy for him is increasing, right? Okay, but what if I tell you that the expansion of Elizabeth's cancer could be alleviated by an experimental drug that OHIP won't pay for, that Mike knows is in the pharmacy, and that if he could just get a couple of months of supply for Elizabeth, she might live and the family could be together and happy again. Again, our sympathy increases as the story gets more emotional which demonstrates that it is very easy to get caught up in the surrounding details and miss the singular important fact at the center of the controversy, which is, thou shalt not steal. That is the ethic, and no matter what the circumstances are that surround it, no matter the emotions, that's the correct answer. One of the problems in our society is that evangelicals such as us, and, in, uh, and indeed biblical principles sometimes, are seen to be prejudiced or bigoted, intolerant, reactive. Some people even say repressive. Indeed, there are Christians that are that way, but the Bible is not that way. Scripture tells us to preach the truth in love. It is possible to live a morally ethical life and to live in love at the same time. Many say that Christianity is not the only way. And how can we be so sure that we and we alone have the way to heaven? Such people are called pluralists. And they think that the singularity of belief only in Jesus Christ stands in the way of appreciating other religions and getting along smoothly with them. But if you accept Christ, 
you accept the central fact that he and he alone saves from sin. His work and his work alone prepares the way for salvation. Jesus himself said, no man comes to the Father except by me. You cannot be a Christian if you believe that there are ways other than by Christ to come to God. There is no way to read the New Testament without coming to the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the Bible, you must subscribe to the ethics of Christ and the Bible. We must live our lives in the light of the Word of God and not be swayed by the situational ethics or the relativism of others. This may be tough. Our culture is strong. It's like a sea with a strong tide and our boat sometimes seems to be small, but we can't allow ourselves to become ashamed of our beliefs or defensive in our ways of life. We have God's word to validate our lives. Instead, we need to be courageous. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, there are many different ethical issues that we could discuss. Human rights, substance abuse, Samaritan ethics, capital punishment, pre- and extramarital sex, surrogate motherhood, animal rights. But I've chosen to concentrate on the three that are on the screen here behind me. Abortion, euthanasia, and bioethics. Now, I may not have time to get to the last one. We'll see how's, how we get along here. Abortion. I'm going to be clear here this morning in describing what goes on. Definition is the expelling of a fetus from the mother with the intention of bringing about its death. <clears throat> a fetus is a growing child in a mother's tummy. Fetus is formed from the joining of the father's sperm and the mother's egg. And when the two cells join, a child is formed, and at that point, it's called the point of conception. Clinics and hospitals in North America, and indeed in other countries, allow a surgical procedure to cut out or to suction out a fetus from the mother and destroy it as medical waste. And that is called abortion. When a baby is conceived, it takes nine months to grow into a fully formed child ready for birth. Medical staff have divided those nine months up into three three-month periods called trimesters. So the first trimester is the time from the point of conception to the end of three months. The second trimester is months four to six, and the last trimester commence commences in month seven and ends at the birth of the child, usually at the end of the ninth month. In the United States, there was a landmark legal case in the Supreme Court called Roe versus Wade in the year 1973. The ruling handed down by the court made it legal in the USA to abort children from the mother in the first two trimesters that is, in the first six months of the pregnancy, for any reason at all. 
Jane Roe, which was a pseudonym, usually we say Jane Doe, but in this case, the, the pseudonym chosen was Jane Roe. It wasn't the woman's real name. Jane, ver Jane Roe versus Wade also allowed abortion in the last trimester, that is in months seven, eight, and nine, if the mother's physical or mental health was in danger. A subsequent decision called Doe versus Dalton defined the mother's health very widely indeed with factors to be considered including physiological, physical, emotional, family health, and the woman's age. The practical effect of these two decisions is that abortion is very much unrestricted in the USA since 1973. Having said that, in real life, most abortions, 99%, are performed before the fifth month. Nevertheless, and this is astounding, since 1973, over 60 million abortions have been performed in the United States of America. That's one every three minutes. Remarkably, Jane Roe, which was the pseudonym chosen for that initial case, was a real woman by the name of Norma McCorvey. And she became a Christian in 1995. Astoundingly, she did not proceed in having an abortion for her child, and the child instead was adopted by another family. She became very active in the anti-abortion movement after salvation, but the damage had already been done. The Supreme Court case still remains in effect today. That's the United States. Some of you will remember in Canada in 1988, there was a doctor called Henry Morgenthaler who challenged Canadian laws against abortion and challenged government funding bans for abortion. He was ultimately successful in changing Canadian law at the federal level to make it the choice of the mother as to whether a child was aborted or not. He was so celebrated for his work that he was awarded the Order of Canada in 2008. He's now deceased. Because of the change in abortion laws in Canada today, over 85,000 legal abortions are carried out each year, one every six minutes. In the world as a whole, the best estimate is that there are 55 million abortions carried out every year. That's one every second. Children are dying. Our society is polarized on this matter into two camps. The pro-choice camp argues for abortion in two ways. First, they argue that the mother has autonomy. Pro-choice people wish to leave the decision to the mother. Who can argue against choice, right? The argument is that the mother is carrying the baby, it's the mother's body, and the mother has rights, including the right to decide if she wants the child or not. The pro-choice argument also say that 
while the mother has all the rights in the world, the fetus has no rights. Scientifically, there is no argument that a child begins to grow at the point of conception. The sperm and the egg cease to exist as individual entities, and all the genetic material necessary to form an individual is present at the point of conception. No new genetic material is added to the individual from that moment until their natural death. So there's no doubt that the fetus is human. But pro-choice ethicists believe that the fetus is not a person until at some point after conception that's impossible to define. Some argue that it is not a person until all the body parts are functioning. Some that it's not a person until there are brain waves, which is at about one and a half months. Others that sentience must occur. Sentience is consciousness, and that happens at about two and a half months. Others argue that it's not a person until it can survive outside the body of the mother. With medical science advances, that gets younger and younger. Others argue that solving problems, consciousness, and communication ability are needed. This carried to an extreme would put personhood even after birth. The right to life camp wishes to stop abortions. They maintain that the fetus is a person at the point of conception, not at some point farther along in the trimesters of growth. They also claim that while the mother has rights, so does the child. Instead of contrasting the rights of the baby versus the rights of the mother, the relationship that is required by God is a relationship of love. The mother and child are not competing in an adversarial way, they should be coexisting in a loving way. Christians should accept the right to life view. Ethically, the word of God is clear on this issue. There are a number of verses behind me on the screen. I will read them to you. Deuteronomy 5 and 17 says this, Thou shalt not kill. And it will be impossible for me to accept that aborting a fetus is not killing a child or a potential child. Secondly, the psalm writer in Psalm 139, 13 to 16 says this. You have formed my inward parts. And this is referring to God. You have formed my inward parts. You have woven me in my mother's womb. Psalm 139 also makes the following claims. The fetus is a child from the point of conception. The fetus is a person. It has a soul. It's made in the image of God. And its days are ordained by God. Verse 16. Its days are not ordained by its mother, its father, or society. Its days are ordained by God. Exodus 21 presents the case of a pregnant woman who is a bystander to a fight, and as a result, she is hurt. The law required that if she was hurt, or if the unborn child was hurt, 
the eye-for-an-eye principle applied, strongly suggested that the child was just as much a person as the mother, even in this case where the child was unborn. Job 10, 8-12, describes Job's plea to God, Your hands have made me, he said to God, and you have fashioned me an intricate unity and knit me together with bones and sinews. Genesis 4, 9-10 describes the blood of innocence crying to God from the ground. What is more innocent than a helpless baby, whether in the mother's womb or not? The word of God is clear. It's, God deci- it's God's decision on when a child, a fetus, dies, not the mother's, and not the father's, and not anyone else. Of course, there's lots of what-ifs to talk about. What if the mother's an unwed mother? That is, she's not married or is very young, such as a teenager. This reminds us of the story that I told you of Mike. It begins to bring emotion into the discussion. And while in the case of an unwed mother or a young teen, it's tragic, It's wrong to compound the immorality with more sin, the killing of a child. There are alternatives. Either by raising the child together with the teenager's family or placing it for adoption. These are options that are available to all. Remember, Jesus himself was born to an unwed mother. Not that Mary had illicit sex, she did not, but she wasn't married when she became pregnant. In our society today, and listen to this, in our society today, she would receive advice to abort the child. What if the mother was raped? Again, this is a very serious crime against the mother. The rapist should be punished to the full extent of the law, but we should not compound the initial crime by adding abortion to the list. What if it's determined that the baby is handicapped, either mentally or physically? Handicaps and disabilities mean that there will be serious challenges ahead for the parents and for society. Again, this is not an excuse for abortion. God's prohibition on taking life applies to the healthy and the disabled. What if the mother and baby will both die if the pregnancy continues? This instance is the only one where serious considerations must be given. This situation is referred to in ethical debates as lifeboat ethics referring to a scenario where a ship is sinking and the lifeboats are packed. As swimmers come up to the lifeboat and, uh, lifeboats and beg to be admitted, there comes a point where some have to be turned away because all the people in the boat will die if more are added to it. In that case, the swimmers are turned away in order to produce the greater good. That is, some must die that more might live. 
So in the case of this situation where both the mother and baby will die unless the baby is taken, ethicists, including most Christians, will say that it is better that one lives, the mother, than that two die, the mother and baby. Having said that, this situation happens very, very rarely, particularly in first world societies. The bottom line is that scripture claims God is the author of life. And it proclaims that life has a high value even before birth. Together, the scripture and our Christian heritage value both children and the ethic of love and the need for self-sacrifice on behalf of a child. Thus, Christians should not themselves abort, nor should they condone or support abortion by our society or individuals in it. Now I'm going to go on at this point to talk about euthanasia, which is death at the other end of life. But at this point, I will take questions. If anybody has questions on what I've said about abortion or God's word in relationship to it. All right, I've either been super clear or you're embarrassed. Euthanasia. <clears throat> Genesis 2 and 7 says this, And the Lord God formed mankind of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, and women, became a living soul. Euthanasia is a word formed from two Greek words meaning happy death. Today it means an act that brings about the assisted death of a terminally ill person. With advances in medical science, lifespans are longer and healthier than they have been ever before. But at the end of life, there are still questions about the quality of life which are ethically worrisome to Christians. Now there's an inherent force in all of us which wishes to avoid death. This is God-given. However, most of us have seen a situation where a loved one is suffering tremendously from disease and is terminally ill. Pain and suffering associated with those situations makes us wonder whether a quick, painless death administered with drugs is not the best way to solve the matter. I myself have been a witness to this situation and wondered about the best solution. There are two types of euthanasia. There's active euthanasia, which is the intentional killing of a person or actively assisting someone to kill themselves. Passive euthanasia is allowing someone to die, primarily by withholding treatment. <clears throat> Some of you may recall from the 1990s a certain Dr. Jack Kervorkian, pictured here, 
He was known in the media as Dr. Death. A number of years ago, he gave a terminally ill Alzheimer patient a suicide machine, and the drugs in it enabled her to self-administer a lethal objection. And he went on to offer the same service to others. Dr. Kevorkian was, addressed, uh, was arrested. He was tried a number of times and acquitted, but he finally was convicted of murder and served in prison in Michigan, but ultimately released when he swore off assisted suicide. What Dr. Kevorkian practiced was active euthanasia. He took direct action to assist the death of a patient. That was in the US. In Canada, also in the 1990s, we had an emotionally charged situation of a woman by the name of Sue Rodriguez, who lived in Vancouver. She was a patient with ALS, usually referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. She was a real person with intense suffering, and she generated real pathos and empathy from Canadians regarding her plight. Her cause was sensationalized by a member of parliament named Sven Robinson, who has since been disgraced for other reasons. He was present with her when eventually she committed suicide. This also is active euthanasia. The Netherlands in Europe has, for example, very liberal laws regarding the use of active euthanasia. And residents of Netherlands still struggle with this ethical question, with many families fearing that their loved ones could be euthanized by overzealous doctors. Here in Canada, the debate continues. This slide shows a headline from the National Post from a few years ago and describes the report of a medical panel that suggested that children as young as 12 years old should be given a choice on whether they can be euthanized. It makes you shake your head. What does God say about assisted suicide? And what does God say about euthanasia? The Bible describes these matters of life and death as follows. 1 Samuel 2 and 6, The Lord killeth, the Lord maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Job 14 and 5 says this, Man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, referring to God. Ecclesiastes 8 and 8 says, No man has authority to restrain the wind, and no man has authority over the day of death. Genesis 2 and 7, which we already read, says this, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God made him a living soul. As you can see, the Bible does not refer specifically to suicide or euthanasia, but it does make clear that the same arguments we used in discussing abortion, which was at the beginning of life, are also true of the subject of death at the end of life. Namely, life is given by God. God appoints our days. God wills us to be saved. God wills us to glorify him during our life. And God will take his people when he wills. There are five suicides mentioned in the Bible. Four in the Old Testament and one in the New. 
Saul and his armor bearer, a man by the name of Zimri, another man by the name of Ahithophel, were in the Old Testament. All were suicides. In the New Testament, Judas Iscariot was a suicide. All of the above led tragic lives and at least at the end were displeasing to God. Jonah told God to take him in Jonah chapter 3, but he never considered taking his own life despite his awful plight. Suicide is a unique problem and one that the church generally has not handled well in the past. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, still teaches that suicides will not be in heaven. This is nowhere taught in scripture. Some of you may know that I had a brother uh, whose name was Norman Clark, who was somewhat mentally disabled. Despite his mental condition, he was a sincere Christian and lived his life for God. However, in 1998, in the depths of depression, and despite being under doctor's care and taking antidepressants, he ended his own life by drowning. He told people personally, immediately before doing what he did, that he was dying so that he could go to heaven. What Norman did not realize, and perhaps given his condition he could not have understood, was that the timing of death should not be in his hands, but in God's. Despite that, I am certain that Norman indeed is in God's heaven. Bottom line is that active euthanasia and active suicide are ethically wrong in the light of scripture. God says thou shalt not kill, whether killing others by abortion, killing others by euthanasia, or by killing yourself in suicide. They are all ethically wrong. Now we go back to passive euthanasia, coming back to the situation of a terminally ill medical per, um, patient. What should be done in that instance? It's impossible to be dogmatic about what medical measures should be taken in the case of a terminally ill person. If possible, the patient and the family should agree on the best medical strategy for the patient. And in all cases, we should do everything we can to keep the person comfortable and free from pain. But in consideration of all of the medical and age facts, decisions on heroic medical interventions are best left with the patient and family always with God's understanding of the value of life uppermost in our minds. We must want to let God determine the length of our days. As I said before, there's no perfect standard for determining the best medical course of action in these circumstances. And medical improvements, while admirable, sometimes make these situations even more difficult. Passive euthanasia proves that Ethics are sometimes messy.
bioethics is a division of ethics relating to questions about the human body. Biology means the study of, of human beings. I was going to discuss this morning in vitro fertilization, which, with a couple of exceptions, is, is uh, ethically fine. Stem cell research, which in light of God's word is fine. And cloning, which generally speaking in the sight of God would be wrong. But uh, I do not have time to cover those topics. It would take another 15, 20 minutes. So let's close in prayer. Father, we acknowledge that we are children of God. <clears throat> we acknowledge that we are subject to the laws of humans. And we acknowledge that we need to leave the matters of birth and death and their timing in the hand of God. Our society errs when it takes into its own hands decisions relating to life and death. Father, we pray that as Christians we may uphold the ethics that are laid out in the Word of God. That we may be examples to others. That we may persuade others by speaking the truth in love. We are thankful for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for all we've received as a result of it. Ask thy blessing upon us now as we part in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.